This is the Padverb Podcast, and I'm your host, KMO. And in this episode of the podcast, we're going to talk about sex robots and incels and dogs. <laughs> Maybe not in that order. We're also going to talk about evolutionary psychology and how algorithms, machines, corporations, and uh, other non-human entities make use of our evolved psychological predilections to advance their own aims. My guest this week is Rob Brooks, and we will be talking about his new book, Artificial Intimacy, Virtual Friends, Digital Lovers, and Algorithmic Matchmakers. So right now I am reading from the Columbia University Press page for the book. Here's the description of the book. What happens when the human brain, which evolved over eons, collides with 21st century technology? Machines can now push psychological buttons, stimulating and sometimes exploiting the ways people make friends, gossip with neighbors, and grow intimate with lovers. Sex robots present the humanoid face on this technological revolution, yet although it is easy to gawk at their uncanniness, more familiar technologies based in artificial intelligence and virtual reality are insinuating themselves into human interactions. Digital lovers, virtual friends, and algorithmic matchmakers help us manage our feelings in a world of cognitive overload. Will these machines, fueled by masses of user data and powered by algorithms that learn all the time, transform the quality of human life? Artificial intimacy offers an innovative perspective on the possibilities of the present and near future. The evolutionary biologist Rob Brooks explores the latest research on intimacy and desire to consider the interaction of new technologies and fundamental human behaviors. He details how existing artificial intelligences can already learn and exploit human social needs and are getting better at what they do. Brooks combines an understanding of core human traits from evolutionary biology with analysis of how cultural, economic, and technological contexts shape the way people express them. Beyond the technology, he asks what the implications of artificial intimacy will be for how we understand ourselves. Rob Brooks is Scientia Professor of Evolution at the University of New South Wales, where he founded and directed the Evolution and Ecology Research Center. He is the author of Sex, Genes, and Rock and Roll, How Evolution Has Shaped the Modern World. And now, here's my conversation with Rob Brooks. You are listening to the Padverb Podcast. I'm your host, KMO, and I'm speaking with Professor Rob Brooks of the University of New South Wales. He's the author of a couple of provocative-sounding books, uh, Sex, Genes, and Rock and Roll, How Evolution Shaped the Modern World, and more recently, Artificial Intimacy, Virtual Friends, Digital Lovers, and Algorithmic Matchmakers. And I've only gotten about through the first 60 pages of that, but it's it's right up my alley. As you know, I've, I've talked about similar topics with other people in the past, and I think you heard part of my conversation with First of Incelmatics. Indeed, yeah. First up, welcome, and thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. So you, in addition to the books you've written, you've also recently had an article published in Quillette, and it's called Involuntarily Celibate, Explanations and Practical Solutions to a Dangerous Phenomenon. And I just want to pop over to Twitter here, and I did a quick search for the word incel, and I found this tweet. I won't name the tweeter, but it reads, There's really a serious incel problem growing around the world. Can everyone stop giving birth to sons for a second? And let's really think about this. 
And this has got 558 likes and 156 retweets. So too many incels. Please stop giving birth to boys until we get this figured out. I uh, don't know what level of joke is behind that, but I do hear and see the word incel used pretty interchangeably or just as a synonym for somebody who has no legitimate complaints and somebody whose point of view need not be taken seriously and somebody who just really doesn't matter. And uh, you, you talk about the incel situation being a dangerous phenomenon. What do you mean by that? Well, I, you know, interestingly, uh, that the podcast uh, was first, you know, raised these issues very, very early on in the piece, and that is that uh, involuntary celibacy. Obviously, you know, a lot of people who don't who don't want to be celibate are they're not really celibate. They're simply not able to attract a partner in the current circumstances, and whatever's happening isn't working for them. That is an issue that has plagued societies for a very long time. Uh, certainly, for as long as I think there have been big societies. Um, simply put, you know, people are motivated to, to have sex and to have sexual relationships and to enter into that part of, uh, you know, being an adult and a contributor um, that only comes with being also, you know, having a family. And so that that's a fundamental human motive. But but some people can't, can't do that. They're denied that opportunity purely by their circumstances. It may be, uh, you know, partly their own personal attributes, but it's also simply a question of of supply and demand. Uh, that sounds like an evasion. And a lot of people will hate me talking about sex and relationships and mating um, as a supply demand problem, really. But, you know, sometimes there just aren't enough potential mates to go around. And throughout our evolutionary history, throughout our more, you know, recent recorded history, there have been a number of responses to that, ways in which people have got around that and solutions to that. And some of them are things that we would consider doing in this day and age. And some of them are things that, you know, we've kind of agreed are not, not a good thing. Like throwing young men into war and uh, balancing the supply that way. Throwing young men into war, I, I don't think is really a, um, has usually not been a sort of deliberate cynical solution to having too many young men, but a place that has too many young men who are unable to get involved in, in the sexual relationships, who are unable to establish themselves in a way that makes them marriageable, if marriage was the way in which these things were handled, creates a great deal of upheaval in a society. So the most destabilizing thing that can happen in a society, or one of the most destabilizing things that can happen, is for there to be a surplus of young men with very, very poor prospects of ever entering the mating market because they then gravitate to one another, they form you know, militias or gangs, uh, they cause violence, they cause property crime, and that is often incredibly destabilizing to whatever regime is there because they also foment revolution one way or another. So, you know, the great, um, a great example from history is the um, Nian Rebellion, which ended the Qing Dynasty in, in China. A, you know, a history of preference for boys and sort of sex-specific neglect and possibly infanticide in those times created a surplus of young men um, that then started to form militias um, and they basically went on this kind of roving, um, rolling war with the powers that be for many, many years that was incredibly, you know, destabilizing to China at the time and basically resulted in the fall of that dynasty. And it set, you know, progress, economic progress back, uh, you know, by many decades um, because of the, you know, enormous upheaval that came when that happened. So, what, so one of the obvious ways, if you want to think about this in a supply-demand way, one of the obvious things that influences um, what I call 
the young male syndrome, but it's really what incels recognize as, you know, the big demographic and, and economic drivers of their plight is for there to be more, actually more men than women. And, and especially in the in that those generations that are coming onto the mating market. And we see that again, we see that currently in China as a result of the one child policy. Sex-specific abortion has left, you know, families wanting to have that want to have sons, tending to have more sons in their with their first child. But if they're in those places in China, or if they were in those places in China where um, you could have a second or a third child, particularly if the first one was not a boy, which is how some of the rules were implemented, they don't leave anything to chance with the second or the third kid. And as a result, you have these, you know, incredible sex ratio biases towards men. And it's not the people who can afford to make those choices that are suffering the consequences, because they're, you know, relatively well off and, and well positioned and politically, you know, in the right place at the right time, and they're often urban. But it is the rural families who accidentally have boys, um, and who you know, those sons are left behind. Um, and we know that for every 1% change in the sex ratio, so from, you know, 105 um, boys to 100 girls, if that goes up to 106 boys, you see a 4% increase in violence and property crime in those areas. Uh, so that's, that's, you know, really well established. And there are other things that, that drive um, the surplus of young men who can't find a mate in addition to sex ratios. But sex ratios is the really obvious one and the well-studied one. Well, once upon a time, I was a young man back in the 80s and early 90s. And I know firsthand, but I also know that it has been confirmed, you know, demographically that young men are much more willing to take risks than older men. And if you don't see much prospect of, of having, you know, of, of getting an opportunity to mate and pass on your genes, you're much more likely, I mean, you have nothing to lose genetically, really, and everything to gain in terms of a genetic lineage and you'll do all manner of things, which, you know, a, an older, responsible person, you know, who's more conservative and has something to lose just wouldn't even dream of doing. And I think that's, you know, that's the, the young male phenomenon that um, is of such great concern to older men and uh, also to women. Oh, absolutely. You know, um, but I think that it's easy to lose sight of the fact that this is also a tremendously creative force. Now, I'm not trying to argue that, you know, one person's misery is another person's gain or is society's gain, because I think that those two things, you know, very contradictory ideas need to be held at the same time in order to, to make any sense and any progress here. But, you know, the, the same forces that cause some young men to do stupid things um, or to, you know, take ridiculous risks in the hope of climbing in status and respect or possibly do violent things to basically eliminate competition are also the, the same drivers that drive, you know, people towards certain types of accomplishment in the early, early adulthood. Some some motivation to escape your circumstances and to to you know raise yourself in the world has probably been behind some of the the most incredible success stories. So we think sport is a wonderful uh, vehicle for that because you know it it helps if you've got you know a reasonably well off mother and father, or at least it helps if you're able to afford the time to practice at sport. But you you know think of the example that I love is um, Ronaldo. Um, the original Ronaldo, not Christian Ronaldo, a Brazilian footballer who was so good um, in his early teens that he was invited to try out for one of the, the big clubs, but he couldn't afford the bus fare. 
to go and do his tryout. And so he missed his chance. And a, a couple of years later, he, he got another chance with another club, went basically absolutely flourished, tore the competition apart. They won their first competition that, you know, when he, he really caught fire. He was playing for Brazil in his late teens. He ended up, you know, playing more internationals for Brazil than anybody else and and scoring more goals than anyone else has scored internationally. He's known as Il Fenomeno, you know, and um, here's a guy who found his ticket out of the favela via sport and via that healthy form of competition. And we have recognized for a very long time that young people and young men in particular need those kinds of outlets in, in order to, to have something, some structured way in which to try and climb in status and respect. Otherwise, they hang around with one another and they fall to, you know, towards things that we don't want to see happening and, and that they find would be wasting their lives, um, you know. And, and so you, you wouldn't have a Ronaldo or a Muhammad Ali or a Lee Trevino uh, without the young male syndrome, I believe. And you probably you know, wouldn't, would have a much less peaceful society if we hadn't found ways of channeling those impulses. Somebody in the comments asks, uh, if you get a chance, could you ask Rob's opinion of the field of evolutionary psychology and also of the modern skepticism of evolution, either from evangelicals or otherwise? I gave Rob a very uh, sparse and inadequate introduction here at the beginning. He is an evolutionary biologist. So... <laughs> Your, your opinion on evolutionary psychology is an informed opinion. So if you would address Oswald Spengler's question. Yeah, look, really happy to. I think that, you know, as with so many other ideas and, and areas, we're in a very unfortunate position where evolution sits, uh, you know, right in the culture wars and, and for, for a number of, of reasons. You know, evolutionary psychology, because it basically deals with the big questions of, you know, of why, rather than just, you know, mechanisms, hormones, and, you know, your upbringing, etc. It really deals with how is it that these things came to be? Answers are often seen as, as really definitive. And often it, it, there's a bit of a Rorschach test in that, you know, people will pick and choose which bits of evolutionary psychology suit their their way of thinking or their predispositions. And that's, I, I might circle back to the incels in a moment about that. But most of evolutionary psychology, I go to the evolutionary psychology conferences. I'm not a psychologist by background, um, but I am interested in human behavior and the drivers of human behavior. So I go to a lot of evolutionary psychology conferences. And most of the work in that area is, like, as in just about any academic discipline, is incredibly thoughtful, careful, uh, recognizes that humans are very complex and that the way in which we respond to our worlds is often it has been shaped by evolution. You know, that we only have one theory of life and how life came to be one viable theory, and that is evolution by natural selection. It's been shaped by natural selection, but we've been shaped to be responsive to our environments. Now, there's this very strong impulse to, to you know, polarize nature from nurture and say, uh, you know, this is because of our genes and that's because of our upbringing, et cetera, as if they were different, as if you could say that, you know, a cake tastes good because of the ingredients rather than because of what you did with those ingredients. But in, in most evolutionary psychology, there's this recognition that both our evolved genome that we've inherited from our ancestors and the circumstances that we found ourselves in now combine to generate this you know incredible complexity of human behavior so i'm very pro evolutionary psychology and i think i tend to find that anyone who has a very strong knee-jerk reaction to um, evolutionary psychology is either uh, really hasn't been exposed to it properly or is you know of one of two very strong ideological bents that would make it very hard to have a 
a good faith conversation with. You know, one is they may be um, evangelical or not even evangelical, but just religiously fundamentalist. Rejecting the whole notion of evolution, basically. Yeah, yeah. Unless, of course, it suits them. Because I've seen, you know, hardcore, hard-right Republicans in the United States come out with things about what the natural family is or the natural gender relations in terms of, you know, basically fomenting about, fulminating about um, breadwinner mums as if that were some crime against humanity. Um, and then starting to, you know, talk about what the natural family should be on the basis of something that they once saw in a documentary about baboons, which is, you know, not really how evolutionary thinking works. So again, people are not above cherry picking the bits that suit them. Same thing on the incredibly far left, where there's this, you know, notion that everything is socially and culturally constructed, and that we're we're kind of blank slates. And uh, what the way that I put this is that, you know, those on the right really want to blame the victim, and those on the far left really want to blame the system. Um, and both of those are incredibly simplistic kinds of answers. Um, and you can't entirely blame the victim, and you certainly can't entirely blame the system, because you know it's an interplay between those types of things. So. You know, I try to walk this middle line between people's reflexes, depending on where their, their political backgrounds are. And I don't try to pretend that I don't have a political background myself, but it is very highly politicized. And I think that what we have to do is remember, firstly, you know, knowledge is always evolving. So we can say, I think that this is the, you know, the reason that, you know, people like to eat high carb diets, or I think this is the reason that incels are so angry about their fate, or I think that this is the reason that people are so terrified of sexual assault. But, you know, I recognize as well that knowledge is going to keep moving and we need to keep reevaluating that. Something someone wrote in 1971 may or may not hold now. Um, something that Darwin wrote in 1859 may or may not hold for a particular, you know, phenomenon right now, because that's science, you, you, you know, you move on and when the data changes and when you get better theories, your opinion should also change. Well, Oswald Spengler brings it around to the incels again. He writes, um, all of the evolutionary psychological polygamists are stealing all the incels potential <laughs> mates. <laughs> so yeah, who's, I, who's the, the big one? Christopher Ryan? Is that his name? Oh, yeah. Uh, sex at Dawn. Yep. Yes. Yeah, there's a there's a, a Rorschach test of a book. You know, I think <laughs> it's wonderfully written, but I, I just wonder how much of the outcome of that book was known in advance of actually developing the, you know, finding the evidence train. Um, you know, and I, I think I think the time was right when that book came out for a a more not just just you know polygynist one man many women, but multi male multi female kind of view of human sexuality. We do know, and um, you know, you, the guest that you spoke about earlier in, in the intro spoke a little bit about this. You know that humans are capable of all sorts of mating arrangements. Your guest said uh, it's uh, humans are a polygynous species. Well, you know what? We, no mating system defines a species, and I think that's true of all animals, really. Um, that. Uh, you know, some are, some are good at at monogamy and some are not so good at monogamy. One of the things we know about humans is that in the last five million years, we've developed a, a really uncanny knack for monogamy. That's not to say that we should be monogamous or ought to be monogamous. And it's not to say that we're always monogamous because we demonstrably we aren't. But we can do monogamy. We can concentrate on one mate for a long period of time, possibly weeks, maybe years, um, in some cases, a lifetime, or well, that's probably an oddity because we, you know, raising kids is this incredibly intensive, costly task. 
And so we have that those psychological tools that allow us to bond with someone and stay bonded with someone for a fairly long time. Should that be the way that we want to go and should that work out for our circumstances? So we can do monogamy in a way that our you know, closest relatives can't and probably our ancestors until maybe 2.6 million years ago weren't able to do. Well, the... The incel uh, narrative that they gravitate to is is one in which in the natural state, you know, you can put scare quotes around that, the natural state of humanity, uh, a few males, say 20%, the chads, dominate sexual access to the desirable females and 80% go without. 80% of the men just have no chance. And that it is the men, basically, who benefit most from the institution of monogamy, that it, it allows pretty much everybody to find a mate to pair up with and that the sexual revolution and feminism and I would think to some extent the crashing birth rates that come from urbanization all have diminished the role and the importance of monogamy and what we get are the chads getting all the girls on the dating apps and the uh, the beta males just swiping 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 and you know sending message after message and getting no response and getting increasingly frustrated and angry. So their solution, uh, at least one of the proposed solutions that I see most often proposed, is just a return to a more conservative, traditional uh, social style in which, you know, it's family oriented and nuclear families, fathers are, you know, earning and raising kids and being around and women being satisfied with, um, you know, not getting the chads, just making do with, with one of the betas. Look, I think that's a really, uh, a really big grand theme in the evolution of human, uh, sort of in human cultural evolution more than anything. What we do know and what is in favor of that incel thesis, which is, you know, so the incels love the bits of evolutionary psychology that really suit their purposes, just as the family first conservatives do, just as, you know, people on the left will do when, when, when it suits them. But, uh, and this is one of those areas that really suits them. So yes, very early societies, and I'm talking really only, you know, eight to 10,000 years ago at most, were the first societies where some individuals were able to accumulate such wealth and power and influence that they could um, attract large numbers of, of possible wives. And we're talking, you know, in the tens to the hundreds, the, the King Solomons and the King Sabuzas and the uh, Muhammad bin Awad bin Ladens of, of latter day. The Genghis Khans. Uh, yeah, the Genghis Khans, <laughs> certainly, and, and all of the, the Genghis Khan family. And, and with that, they were able to entertain what, you know, some people dismissively call the harem fantasy. I don't think it needs to be dismissed because obviously the genetic legacy of those rulers um, and, you know, particularly Genghis Khan really speaks for itself. These are people who had lots and lots of offspring. But there was a recognition in, on two levels. First of all, by the, the young the incels of their time, that this wasn't working out for them. Um, and and in, in many cases, they weren't able to do anything to turn that around. They had to basically join the army and take their chances and hope to rise in status and respect. But the, the question of monogamous marriage is not something that was just imposed by powerless young men, because, you know, first of all, that doesn't sound like the people who are making the decisions. But at one level, there's a negotiation between a man and a woman that basically says, look, you might not get the Chad, but if I 
promise to give you everything that I am and promise you all that I will ever be, then, you know, will you stick with me and mostly, you know, be faithful to me and bear my genetic children? And that negotiation is obviously um, one that people have all the time. And they continue to have that negotiation in one form or another. They might not recognize that they're having that negotiation, but there's this kind of, I hate the word script, but let's just use it to, you know, cut to the chase. How about algorithm? Uh, for how you do that. On, on the other hand, though, the leaders recognized that their incel problem was so profound that uh, it was causing them to very, very soon they would basically go have the snot beaten out of them by the neighbors because people were so busy fighting with one another, young men in particular fighting with one another in order to rise in status and respect and steal each other's stuff so that they might have a chance of ever uh, having a bride. Um, and so that, that that has costs within a society. And the societies that where the leaders went, you know what, instead of having a thousand wives, I'm just going to have one. And I'm going to make sure that all of my ministers and advisors and elites and even the priests can only have one. And they invented this weird kind of system, which was a rule that you only get to have one wife, where suddenly there was this, this redistribution of sex, as the incels would like to put it, and a lot fewer angry young men. Now, that society was able to be economically more productive, was able to be better organized, and all of its belligerent impulses could be channeled towards defending itself against those neighbors and possibly even you know, in, impinging on those neighbors via warfare. And so there's some, some very good analyses that suggest that that is actually how monogamous marriage spread from, you know, some people figuring out this incredible innovation of you can only have one wife and you, you're not entitled to have all the brides you could possibly have to that society being stronger as a consequence of that and that society then being able to defend itself. And so those ideas are the ones that um, remained because if you didn't adopt those ideas, then your society would fall by the wayside. That's great, although that current that tends to work for sort of Bronze Age technology and Bronze Age views of human rights. We, what we've recognized in the interim is that you know, forcing people to be with one person for their entire life and saying that there is no other way has other consequences. Um, that are, you know, they're bad for, for women, they're bad for the children, and they're bad for, you know, many men as well. And so, the, you know, over the last century or so, we've been experimenting with other cultural innovations, which are a slightly more relaxed attitude to marriage um, and treating it not as a property rights transaction. Um, and also a slightly more relaxed attitude to sex in which we recognize that sex is, is really decoupled from having babies and that maybe we can experiment with other things. Now, that's had, you know, the sexual revolution and the gains of women's rights. I shouldn't have to explain this, but they've had enormous effects to the benefit of the majority of people in the world. And yeah, there may be some collateral, you know, consequences in that young men on the sort of not the bottom of the distribution but in the sort of middle to mid lower parts of the distribution are finding that circumstances don't suit them quite as well and that that they're you know experiencing a very very real difficult problem of how do I find a mate you don't reverse you know decades and decades of progress that has had enormous positive effects in other areas on account of you know that kind of a that kind of misery you try and find other solutions to that. And I think that I think that the incels would do well to give up on their whole let's wind back 
gender equity because they would probably find more allies who could help them address some of the other things that are causing the problem. And we've actually done some research on this. Um, we studied all of the tweets. Well, no, actually only 1% of the tweets. We have this huge database of, of Twitter stuff. Um, over a period of about eight years and and geolocated where they're coming from and looked at all the ones that are by incels or about incels that use the, luckily the incels use these very peculiar terms and very specific terms. So you pretty much know when you're talking to an incel or about an incel. And we looked in the United States at, at what are the places where this happens? Is this a gender equity issue? Is rise, you know, is the narrowing gender gap um, associated with more incel activity? And it is. So the incels are right in that respect. Same thing with sex ratios. To more men than women. Um, very few women who are single in the sort of 18 to 39 age group, more incels. But more dominant than either of those by a long way. And the one thing that falls out in every analysis of this problem is income inequality. So, you know, income inequality is almost certainly an even bigger driver of human behavior than we realized. And I do a lot of work on income inequality at the moment. But income inequality is by far the strongest predictor of how many incels you have in an area. And that also makes sense because basically if there's lots of very poor men and a few very wealthy men, then those few very wealthy men are going to be attractive. You know, whether, whether that wealth is in, you know, embodied good looks, as the incels are often, you know, focusing on, or whether it is in actual material wealth, you know, women are going to go for, for a rational decision in terms of, is this guy better for me than that guy? And so, you know, where, where the incels argue for the um, redistribution, some incels have argued for the redistribution of sex, very keen on redistribution, but economically often sort of libertarian leaning, if they could simply make some friends with the people of the, uh, the, the left and the center left who say, you know what, there's an unhealthy degree of income inequality, and that is causing a lot of the problems. A lot of the male deaths of despair in the Midwest, the Rust Belt problems, that sort of radicalized white people towards Trump, for example, are all problems of inequality and problems that ge generate mating market problems that basically make men less desirable, more divorceable, less marriable. And so, you know, make your peace with the revolutionaries on the left, many of whom themselves are incels of their own type. Uh, who are also shut out of the mating market and start addressing the ridiculous levels of economic inequality that we have in the century. I agree with that. Now, I think that regular listeners to this podcast and some of my other podcasting efforts are amazed that we are half an hour into a conversation. I'm half an hour into a conversation with somebody who's written a book about digital intimacy, and we haven't talked once about algorithms or machine learning or big data. Uh, and we're just mucking around in prehistory and antiquity. But I, I, I kind of want to stay in prehistory for a little bit longer. Uh, you are a very personable person, uh, very congenial, and you're interested in things that I'm interested in. But I read something in your book last night that was very alienating to me. All right. Yes. And that was your daughter wants a dog and you listed all of the problems with dogs. And I, I get it. You know, uh, dogs are a commitment. They're kind of like kids, like kids light. You don't have to send them to college, but they do They have bodies and physical needs and things. And you can't just put them in a closet and forget about them for months on end without going to prison. And that was bad enough. But then you went and sang the praises of Ibo, which is a little robotic dog, which is designed to appeal to us in a way that puppies appeal to us, where... From my perspective, as a person who absolutely loves dogs, but hasn't lived in a situation where a dog was appropriate for me for many, many years, I've 
I'm a divorced man, father of two. I have a long distance girlfriend in the Philippines. I want to get over there and, you know, merge our lives. But, you know, on a deep emotional level, I crave canine company much more strongly than I crave human female company. And so I went and I watched a video about the latest generation of the Ibo, you know, Japanese robotic dog. And I was so repulsed and put off by the thing. And it brought to mind the movie AI, you know, that Steven Spielberg film from either the very end of the 20th century or the very beginning of the 21st century. And it's, you know, about this young boy who's been, he's not a boy, he's a robot. He's been created to replace the son of a couple who is in cryostasis because he's got an, an untreatable terminal illness. And then, you know, the real boy gets better. And now what do we do with this robot substitute? So, you know, the idea is to send him back to the factory where he'll, he'll be disassembled, but his mother, Monica, can't bring herself to do it. So she basically just pushes him out into the wild. And this kid knows nothing about the world, this, you know, robot boy. Yeah. And one of the last things she says to him is stay away from the flesh fairs. Doesn't tell him what flesh fairs are. And I don't know if you remember, but the flesh fairs are this traveling circus put on by people who absolutely hate the artificial life forms that have proliferated, you know, and as one of the, the characters says, one of the mecha characters says, we were too cheap and they made us too numerous. And basically there's just a population of feral or neglected robots out in the world. And the, uh, the flesh fair people will dump huge piles of spare robot parts and, you know, robots with missing arms and legs and eyes and things just come crawling out of the woods, uh, you know, to, to get replacement parts for themselves. And then they get captured and taken to the flesh fair where they are dismembered, shot out of cannons, blown up. And, you know, in one case they have acid dropped on them and little, Little David, played by Haley Joel Osment, uh, is strapped or chained to his, his robot protector, played by Jude Law, you know, the gigolo who had to go on the run. And they're about to be have acid dumped on them. And there is just a great speech by British or the uh, Irish actor Brendan Gleeson. I just I want to read this. I'd love to play the scene. I, I don't think that we could get away with that. Uh, but I'll, I'd like to read his speech. So he's addressing the crowd and he's got little Haley Joel Osment, you know, under a bucket of acid about to be melted. Mm. And he says, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls and children of all ages, what will they think of next? See here, a bitty bot, tinker toy, a living doll. Of course, we all know why they made them to steal our hearts, to replace your children. This is the latest generation in a series of insults to human dignity. And in their grand scheme to phase out all of God's little children, meet the next generation of child designed to do just that. Do not be fooled by the artistry of this creation. No doubt there was talent in the crafting of this simulator. Yet with the very first strike, which will dump acid on the kid, you will see the big lie come apart before your eyes. And David starts to scream, don't burn me, don't burn me. And the crowd, they're showing, you know, sympathy for him. And uh, Lord Johnson Johnson continues, built like a boy to disarm us. See how they try to imitate our emotions now. Whatever performance this sim puts on, remember, we are only demolishing artificiality. Let he who is without sim cast the first stone. And then the crowd turns on him and they start throwing the beanbags at him because they feel sympathy for this very convincing robot, which looks like a boy. And that character 
is meant to be a character with whom you have no sympathy. You know, here is somebody with an obviously bigoted attitude who is is willing to see our main character, cute little Haley Joel Osment, melted with acid, you know, to prove his ideological point. And here I am 20 years later, feeling more sympathy now yeah. for that man. Uh, because I, I look at the Ibo and I see its big eyes and I see its its baby-like movement. And, I, you know, I in, in the commercial for the thing, they advertise, you don't have to take it out for a walk. You don't have to feed it. It runs on batteries. They don't say this, but, you know, if you don't replace the batteries and it's just sitting there inert, you haven't killed anything. You haven't neglected a real animal. It's it's going to tickle your evolved sensibilities, you know, and your genetic desire to care for babies and to love dogs. But you have no responsibilities to this thing. Mm -hmm. It was it was profoundly displeasing <laughs> to, yeah. to look at that, you know, very cute robot dog. Sure. And I'll stop. I know I've been going oh, absolutely. on. <laughs> I think, I mean, there's, you know, firstly, you know, science fiction is, you know, so often proves to be so very prescient mm -hmm. uh, about <laughs> these kinds of issues. And, and I sometimes wonder why do I bother trying to carve out what I think are a bunch of original thoughts about the future when, you know, incredibly creative people have created fiction that deals with that, you know, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, that deals with with those issues in in a fullness that I've, you know, not, not yet achieved in, in my own thinking about these kinds of things. Whatever um, philosophical point you want to make, you can just post a link to Jean-Luc Picard giving an eloquent speech about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, the, I mean, obviously, I, I haven't bought an Ibo and you know, we have got a dog. Oh, um, really? Okay. Yes, yes. Many people have, have really taken it upon themselves to write to me suggesting that we should have a dog. But we were waiting for the right time. We've got, you know, my partner's got two kids and I've got two kids. And mm -hmm. um, so... Well, it was your daughter it, who was campaigning uh, for the dog in the book. Just, yeah, it was both her daughter okay. and mine, actually. Um, and, you know, in the end, we did, we did, when the time was right for us, we did. Uh, because we are dog people, I think. And we recognize... <laughs> that, you know, we, we know that humans domesticated dogs um, 30,000 years ago. and I might quibble with that, but continue. Shaped them into these incredible, you know, creatures that are, are good at not only, you know, loving us, uh, but also discerning our intentions and knowing when to stay away and when to approach. Mm -hmm. But it hasn't been demonstrated scientifically in the way that would be satisfying to me, but I believe it to be true that dogs changed humans profoundly as well, that our own sociality isn't just our human sociality that we fitted dogs into, but that the dogs inadvertently, in the same way that human dom humans domesticating dogs was inadvertent, at least at first, that dogs have inadvertently shaped us and for the better. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of dogs. I'm just amazed at what <laughs> Ibo has been able to achieve. And that Ron Arkin, who was one of the, he's a um, Georgia Tech roboticist, um, and he gave a talk at our uni, and I was lucky to have dinner with him afterwards, and I was talking to him about it, and it turned out that he was involved in developing Ibo, and he said, you know, what he saw there in the process of what Sony was able to achieve with this robotic dog in the first and second generations, so profound a connection did some people have to those dogs that when Sony, you know, shut down their operation, 
because you know the rest of the business wasn't doing so well so they shut down the ibo project and people couldn't get parts for their dogs anymore and so their dogs basically died whatever the you know <laughs> robotic equivalent of death was some people would have hold funerals for their dogs in in japan there were these elaborate buddhist ceremonies for farewelling your ibo um, if you so chose to to do that. And people would do that in the way that people spend ridiculous amounts of money on their living dogs or leave ridiculous amounts of money to their living dogs or, or you know, canine dogs. So, you know, Ron said, what, seeing what they were able to achieve with that, we'd been talking about sex robots. And he said, I'm not scared of robots that can have sex, but I am scared of robots that can do intimacy. And that really... You know, I was already working on the ideas that that led to this book, but that really set me on that path of, you know, can robots do intimacy? Can machines do intimacy? Surely not. That's the most human of human things. You know, robots can do this, but they'll never be able to, you know, dot, dot, dot. And people love to, to make statements of that nature. And there's lots of people who say they'll never be able to truly do intimacy. And so I thought I'd have a look at that. And, you know, in fact, intimacy like making friends, you know, even more so than than like tickling people's religious and uh, not religious um, romantic fantasies, is something that is iterative. It you know happens over a number of steps, um, and it's inherently algorithmic. It's a feedback kind of response cycle of, in the case of intimacy, making something um, or drawing something else into your sense of self, making the other part of you and interestingly enough that's actually not that complicated for machines to do and they're already doing it and so that's what set me in in that direction from a discussion about robotic dogs so i kind of <laughs> felt that I had to honor that robotic dog and at the same time remind my children if they ever choose to read my books which they seem to be immune to <laughs> i know the feeling <laughs> for the better at this point in their lives you know they that uh, at one point we were having that discussion well i want to read something now that you wrote oh yeah so you talked about the domestication of dogs. And you've said that humans did that inadvertently. And I would go further and say that humans, and, and you've already said this, something equivalent anyway, humans didn't domesticate dogs. Humans entered into a co-evolutionary partnership with dogs. Mm. And, but you know, you can call it domestication. But then you go on to, in the book and you say, more importantly though, in addition to domesticating dogs, humans have domesticated humans. You write, in short, Throughout the domestication of humanity, raising a family became an economic enterprise, and sex took on properties of a transaction. The simple sexual transactions of chimpanzees, where mating with a male can assure a female his protection, perhaps a boost in status and the occasional piece of shared meat, evolved into more valuable and more varied transactions. The transaction is often subtle, even disguised. So much so that talking about sex as a deal raises hackles, and for many, sullies its mystique. And uh, I'm reminded there of what I think of as sometimes the, the unhelpful notions that go under the, um, the rubric of romanticism. Mm. You know, the idea that uh, you have one true love, when you find them, you will recognize them, and then you will feel this special bond with them forever. And there's nothing transactional about it. It is sublime. It is transcendent. It is semi-mystical. And, um, you know, it's, it's what life is all about. And uh, yeah, there's some transactions going on here, and it's not necessarily to our benefit to remain blind to them. You know what that fantasy of 
of the one and of the ineffable, you know, ineffable specialness of, you know, finding your soulmate and all of that kind of kind of nonsense really <laughs> does is it just pushes up the price of the transaction. Yeah. It, it, it puts so much pressure on it. You know, and, and likewise, the notion that you will then be with them for the rest of your life, unless you do something wrong or bad or cheat, in which case, you know, then the, the deal is off and you've broken the spell and the witch will cast you into the dark forest or whatever. Um, but all of that notion that puts so much pressure on sexual relationships and, and uh, marriages and what a family is just pushes up the value of the good, which is, you know, lifelong or not even necessarily lifelong but you know a, a monogamous relationship now people have got enough pressure on them as it is and enough psychological pressure on them to find a partner and to find that validation that comes you know that we're told will come with finding somebody who loves you that they don't need any more pressure you know because you know so many people are waiting to be to be made whole by somebody else and I think that, you know, anybody who's done, done more than about five minutes worth of serious thinking or reading or work on themselves will has to reach the conclusion that no other person can make you whole, you know, and that that's not what this is about. You, you're actually entering into something, hoping to enter into something with an autonomous person with interests of their own who is sometimes going to be profoundly at odds with you about, you know, any given topic. And... You know, that, that's the magic once you recognize and embrace that. But, you know, I, I wonder whether societies will have the maturity to use and deploy high-level sex robots in a way that deals with many of their problems. Oh, I, I I'm not optimistic because I don't think that societies are mature enough to not believe in, you know, secondhand fairy tales about what romance and love is. Sorry to bring the tone down a bit. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm going to take it a bit lower even. Uh, there's a quote from uh, William S. Burroughs that I love. It's from his uh, Words of Advice for Young People. He says, or he wrote, Beware of whores who say they don't want money. Mm. The hell they don't. What they mean is they want more money. Much more. Yes. Yeah, well, that's absolutely right. You know, the transaction that people make, the, the transaction that people of my grandparents' generation who met in the 40s during the Second World War and, you know, raised families in the 50s, and who at some level, uh, certainly the, the representatives who think they remember that time, you know, rhapsodize about that, um, about the fact that, you know, people married and they married for life and they raised 2.3 kids in a white picket fence home and all of that kind of stuff. The price of that was so much greater because the price was everything you have and may yet become. And in the case of men, it was often your prospects. Men had only just shown a glimmer of what those prospects might be. And they would have to work to always increase the amount of money that they were bringing in and hopefully elevate the entire family, carry the entire family upwards in terms of social status. And in the case of women, it was often their complete identity and all of their professional and intellectual goals that were subverted to, you know, a business of raising a family and being a good wife and making a home and, and you know, doing the non-sort non of cash-based aspects of elevating status. And I think the people who want to wind back, you know, marriage law to a time where that was what, that's the part people were aspiring to. If you were lucky enough to be middle class 
or upper class and and be able to even buy into that bargain you got to be really careful what you wish for because it's it's not talked about in terms of you know nowadays we're very happy to talk about mental health and anxiety and depression and substance use and we're a lot more relaxed about acknowledging those things but i don't think that the 50s were any kind of rose garden <laughs> Well, I wasn't around for them, and neither were you. But yes, I, I agree. Oh, we we were brought up by people who did. I mean, I imagine you were. I certainly was. I'm 54. I'm early yeah. Gen X. Uh, I turned. I graduated from high school in 1986. 1984 was my first summer with a car, uh, and it was a very different world than my kids are growing up in. I was much more out in the real world, taking risks and um, engaging with you know real life situations, whereas my kids are at home. You know, my my eldest, who, you know, his personality is such that he wants to stay home anyway. His what was to be his first year of college was the first year of the pandemic. Exactly the same for me. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that for him, uh, not wanting to engage socially, that was a godsend. But, you know, from my perspective, it was the worst thing that could befall him at that moment. Oh, absolutely. You know, I feel I, I obviously teach a lot of students who are coming through now the second and third years are the people who sat their final year of school in the in, in lockdown or went through their first year of university in lockdown and they don't have that they've missed out on all those rites of passage their their proms as you would put it or formals as we would and and that you know being at university was the best thing that ever happened to me just meeting people and going drinking with different people every night and <laughs> you know and and we never really i mean I may have been an incel of the time in that, you know, I didn't have a tremendous amount of dating success, but you met, you met people all the time and you, your social life and your dating life were far less decoupled than it is for these kids who are only finding people on, on apps. Yeah, the apps are fantastic and introducing you to new people and people who, if you break up with them or if it doesn't work out, you won't have to face the embarrassment of encountering them in everyday life. But their social life is utterly disjointed from that part of their life. And, you know, that part, I can't even get my head around how difficult it is for them. Well, let's let's talk about the domestication of humanity, that which we've started on ourselves. We've been doing yeah. it to ourselves for tens of thousands of years. Enter the algorithms. Algorithms, and I've, I've said this so many times, I'm going to try to keep it super short. Algorithms which have no subjectivity, no consciousness. It's not like anything, you know, to be the Facebook algorithm or to be the uh, the YouTube curatorial algorithm. They have developed amazing competences. They are very good at certain things. And if you task them with something and you don't tell them how to do it, you just tell them what's a good result and what's a bad result, they can come up with really seemingly very innovative, creative ways of accomplishing their goals. And they have been given the goal and enormous amounts of computing resources and funding. The goal is capture human attention and keep it focused on this platform mm -hmm. by whatever means necessary. And the algorithms churning their way through design space, trying this strategy and that strategy with no conscious intention whatsoever have discovered that an excellent way to keep people engaged with a particular platform is to get them angry at each other, you know, to get them angry at other people to uh, make them very ideologically uh, intense, you know, and intolerant of dissent, or to take them down a conspiratorial rabbit hole. You know, one YouTube video 
Uh, you might start off watching Tucker Carlson videos. You know, Tucker Carlson's a conservative commentator here in the U.S. You might start off watching his videos on YouTube, and three months later, you've devolved into, you know, the the lizard people, the shape shifting reptilian overlords from another dimension are pulling the strings, and you know, all of the the presidents and prime ministers and royal families—they're all reptiles. You know, this that will you will spend hundreds of hours on YouTube to get to that point. And from the YouTube algorithm's point of view, that is success. That is a job well done. You you wanted me to keep this guy on the site as much as possible. Here you go. Mm -hmm. He's a lunatic now, and he is convinced that you know elected representatives want to kill him. But he's he spent hundreds of hours on YouTube, so you know, <laughs> congratulations. And his own research, <laughs> right? And the algorithms have no ill intent. They have no intent. Yeah. And yet this is, it's a process that is emergent. I would say it's driven by, you know, a capitalistic profit motive, basically. That the goal was never to turn everybody into really hostile, paranoid, delusional, you know, potential terrorists, but that end serves the larger goal of, you know, selling advertising to them. Yeah, absolutely. No contest. I think that that's a really tight summation of where we stand right now. Um, <laughs> that was me trying to keep it short too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, you know, I completely buy into that. And so, you know, what do we do about it? You know, I think there's so many things that need to be updated. Uh, you know, one of which is this absolute rubbish about, uh, you know, personal choice. The fact that you were there and that you were clicking the, you know, watch the next video, watch the next video, <laughs> isn't necessarily an unfettered choice just like the fact that you light up another cigarette after the first one because you're addicted to nicotine isn't a completely free choice it's always been a complete evasion that you know people can choose not to do it you know people with with guns can choose not to shoot the wrong person with them you know it's just a, a really crappy evasion of responsibility by people who are making a lot of money from, <laughs> from what they do. Now, yeah. you know, am I saying that that uh, YouTube and Facebook should, you know, hold back and not try to derive the most advertising dollars that they can? You know, it's a, that would be a very hard argument to make because if you were to do something about that, if you were to say you need to do this, you just get, you know, TikTok will figure something out, another way around it in order to achieve the same kind of goals. TikTok um, is a whole nother level. Yeah, to this. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So, you know, they're in a, a somewhat competitive marketplace in which they are competing for, they haven't figured out how to split human attention between two platforms in a clean way. Although, you know, I think they're trying. But I think that at first it would be really refreshing to see some some direct honesty on the part of the people who are benefiting from the way that their algorithms work, that there are unintended consequences. Because I think to do that, then you would be able to make, you know, move towards some kind of agreement that, you know, laws and regulations should probably try to minimize the worst unintended consequences. And right now, I think, you know, partly because of the way in which the law works in that, you know, if you do bad, then you get sued kind of thing. You know, nobody wants to really admit and be open or say, we don't know. I mean, I'm lucky. I, I work in science where, you know, the, the most helpful thing you can sometimes say is, look, I don't know. 
let's go and find out. And I only wish I, I have applied to various social media platforms for money to do things, and they'll give you a small amounts of money to you know hopefully make the problem go away. But not really, but at least appear to be doing something about the problem. But what I really would like is complete access, unfettered access to their programs, and uh, not to, to their programs, but to their you know their product. I don't know that I could actually do anything with it. I don't personally have all the skills that would be required, but I think that should, you know, we be able to access that in a, in a partnership where we're able to really understand how things work and why they work, then maybe we could make some kind of progress. But, you know, I don't think that's ever going to happen. Alternatives are, of course, for algorithms to be engineered to have slightly different qualities that they're trying to optimise. Perhaps instead of simply optimizing time on platform, um, oh, so dating dating apps are a great example. Okay, like all other apps, they want to sell advertising. They want to sell you know microtransactions that will allow you to you know super like somebody or get your mm. profile put to the top of the queue or have a particular filter on or whatever it is. And so, in order to do that, they re need repeat traffic. They need you to keep swiping. Right. Um, and so they need you to not get the benefit of the app that you you picked it up to get, which exactly. is to hook up with somebody. Well, I mean, you know, assuming that 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 what people really want is you know to find the one, which of course we've just poured cold yeah. water on that idea a little bit. So we we can't necessarily have it both ways. And, and and many people, those people who are getting all the swipes are actually probably getting something like what it is that they think they want or fantasize that they might get. But, you know, if they were to get better, if if somehow individual well-being was able to be not was able to be monitored, which I think it can be, I think with all of the information and all the sensors that we have out there, we probably can generate some kind of an algorithmic measure of uh, is this doing the person any good? Then yeah, we and and so yes, as you as you got to uh, with the dating apps, it could simply be: Are people finding that they're making you know happy and healthy connections, and are people able to step away from it rather than chasing on the hamster wheel? Are they able to step away from it for a period of time because they're busy concentrating on this fantastic new person that they've met? How do how do how do we build that into the business model? If you can do that, then the, you know that app is going to enjoy a certain amount of benefit, and it'll enjoy the people who will go to it if they understand that this is how it works. Are exactly the same people who fifty hundred thousand years ago were the people who said, "Look, I might never be able to have all of the mates in the world, but if I concentrate on you and you concentrate on me, we can do something that's worth doing." If we could if we could figure that one out in our pre-literate, pre-agricultural days, then surely we can figure that one out in the current um, era with all the things that we know and all the technology at our disposal. Let's talk about sex robots. Surely. Took us ages to get there, hey? Yeah, well, <laughs> I know your, your interviews often start with that. And, yeah, uh, no, absolutely. I'm actually, it's really refreshing not to just jump straight into it, aren't they weird? Well, you know, if, if you do a YouTube search for sex robots, it's it's a glorious topic on which to do a video because you get to display, you know, hyper stimulating, uh, disproportionate female forms, you know, big breasts and super big nipples and big butts. But, you know, you're just covering a story. You're not you're not putting up images of yeah, these yeah. distorted bodies. I don't have one at home, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. 
I'm, I'm not manipulating your nervous system with this imagery. I'm just explaining to you what's going on with this emerging industry. But, you know, if you look at the thumbnail images for them, they're just, they're pornography. The, the, the thumbnail images for a story about this topic are typically pornographic. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know I have, I have no moral qualms with pornography, but at the same time, the older I get, the, the it's kind of like the robotic dog. I can see why it's supposed to be stimulating and pleasing, and it's the reverse. Mm-hmm. But that's that's a different topic. There was a thing called the DARPA Grand Challenge. DARPA is a defense agency here in the U.S., and they yeah. they would hold a contest. And at first, it was a contest for self-driving cars out in the desert. Self-driving cars are pretty good now, uh, and so they changed the contest to build a robot that can get out of a car, climb a flight of stairs, turn a doorknob to open a door, enter a room, walk across the room, and turn a valve to close the valve. Any human being, you know, who is just has the normal cognitive and physical capabilities, that's that's all trivial. We would do that without thinking about it. We wouldn't consider it a challenge. It would be an odd list of things to accomplish, you know, if somebody told you to do that, but it would be no trouble. And robots just can't do it. Mm. You know, this is this is climbing Mount Everest for robots. Yeah. And you, you see Boston Dynamics robots doing parkour in their videos, and it seems impressive, but then you look at human athletes and what they can do. So yeah. the most expensive multi-million dollar robots can sort of kind of approximate what a human being can do. But, you know, these sex dolls, which look hyper stimulating, they just lie there. I mean, they're in whatever pose you put them in. They don't really, they certainly can't walk. They can't dance. They can't put on their own clothes or take their own clothes off. They, they can't do any, I mean, from my perspective, interacting with one, it, it's something you just wouldn't want to be caught doing unless I know some people are, are really out in front and they'll just take their, their sex doll out on a date or to some social function. But, you know, to me, that's very bizarre behavior. But it just seems that the robotics, the robotic capability lags far, far behind the AI. That algorithms learning us, learning our quirks, learning our likes, learning to push our evolutionary buttons and, and learning to appeal to our psychology in increasingly sophisticated ways is light years ahead of a robot that could actually have sex or do the things that lead up to having sex. And it, it strikes me that when sex robots actually come on the scene and they're a real thing that are affordable by normal people, that those, the people getting them will already have AI companions, digital friends, you might say, who know them very, very well. And those pre-existing AIs with whom we already have relationships will be the things driving mm. the sex robots when the sex robots eventually arrive. But, you know, by the time they arrive, you might not even care so much. You know, the AI, once it knows you really, really well, can be so gratifying in its interactions with you that, you know, the having the sex robot show up at your door, you know, speaking in the voice of your your well-loved AI companion, it, it might not even be such a big deal by that point. Yeah. But uh, my, my general point is that robotics are nowhere close. And as you say in the book, these are not sex robots that you see now. These are sex dolls or doll bots, as you call them. Yeah. Yeah, I was wondering whether I'd get any heat from, from the robot manufacturers who insist that they're selling sex robots. But really, you're right. You know, they're clunky. They can move through, you know, a couple of angles, you know, pretty much while they're sitting there talking to you, probably. They're not in any respect active participants in the sex part, much less, you know, agentic, obviously. 
and and quite you know right now the sex doll bots are also their so-called ai is really a fairly clunky chatbot but i agree with you the chatbots will come on the ai friendship part of things will come on in a, in a way that is much faster than the robotics ever will and i i do think that the sex robots will probably always be niche i don't think we're going to be in westworld ever where we're wondering is that a is that a person or is that a humanoid robot um, you know, designed to stimulate, you know, person flesh kind of fantasies, etc. I don't think, I mean, obviously the, the, the internet is littered with people making assertions like robots will never be able to, computers will never be able to, um, <laughs> and being proved wrong within about 15 minutes. Yeah. And I make that same argument myself about the friend-making capacities of the AIs and that, you know, the, the relationships people have with AIs, I think, are going to far outstrip our imaginations very, very soon. I think what's going to leave sex robots, assuming there is a market for sex robots, and I'm not entirely convinced there is a market apart from a very niche market of people who are sufficiently well-off to be able to afford it and yet sufficiently unattractive or just, you know, um, left field in their in what they want from a relationship to to really buy one but i think that what will will outstrip the demand for sex robots almost entirely is virtual reality sex and i know that that you know people have been put backing the virtual reality horse for decades now um and it's never really turned out to be all that yet <laughs> um, but i think that you know the the combination of sex toys that you can you know plug into or plug yourself into and and then can interface with some kind of computer um, other haptic devices that can you know basically allow you to feel and convey touch in other parts of your body good ai chat capacities and then improving virtual reality you know sensory inputs sound and particularly vision will probably make a kind of virtual sex available, you know, well before all of the robotic challenges are really sorted. And they'll make that available in a way that eventually I think will become responsive, that you can actually, you know, the scene can change in relation to where you're going with it and where the AI recognizes that you're going and wants to take you. You're not just going to have a children's own adventure book, obviously an adult only children's own adventure book, but you're going to have a, um, you know, you're going to have a truly responsive kind of scene. And I think that the benefits of that are obviously with the robots, you've either got to have a massive closet to keep it in, or you've got to be really out there in terms of, you know, letting, you know, whomever it is. I try not to use a name because I might name someone's product. Um, <laughs> you on the couch when your mates come around, assuming you have any mates. Yes. Um, or when your mother comes around. With virtual reality, you know, if your mum knocks on the door, you can switch the computer off old school like we used to do in the 80s and 90s, mm -hmm. um, and, and it's all gone. Or you can simply take off the headset. Or if you drop into a scene that turns out to be the, 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 the character is not to your liking or you feel unsafe or whatever, you can step out of that scene. And then, obviously, the big prize is being able to, to meet up with other people who are suitably, you know, plugged in and strapped into whatever devices suit their fancy and then participate in something together, either with VR characters or with the other, you know, one another being VR characters in, in the scene that you're in will create this, this capacity for virtual reality sex 
Now, that I think would be very exciting to a lot of people, and it might solve some of those supply issues that we spoke about right at the top of the show, in that folks will be able to meet an almost unlimited number of people who are looking for the same thing. Good algorithms will help to matchmake you to those things. And when you get to the point where you don't like them, or they're just dangerous, or they're just, you know, obnoxious, you just step out of the scene and you leave them and they don't know where you live. They can't stalk you. They can't follow you home. They can't threaten you. And I think that that would probably be a net improvement for a lot of people, although we may never see other people again because people are just so satisfied. With what they've got at home. <laughs> Have you seen the episode of Futurama, uh, Don't Date Robots? I've heard about it, and I, oh. I must say I'm not a Futurama watcher, but I, I will I will dig it up and have a look at it because a few people have mentioned it. Yeah. Yes. Well, basically, um, the main character he uh, he gets a digital, you know, he gets a robot girlfriend, and everybody else is aghast, and they say why, and they they show him an educational film called "Don't Date Robots," and it's about how. You know, men's just stopped trying to do anything once they had access to beautiful women whenever they wanted them, because all of human achievement was driven by, you know, the male desire to to get some. And if, you know, if it's free, you know, always on tap, then men will never do anything. And I think that those issues we spoke about in the first half of the show, you know, there is this very strong sense and it dates back at least far, as far back as Freud. And it's probably partially correct and partially completely off base. Like Freud, you know, motivation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that motivation, right for the wrong reasons. Um, that you know, a lot of motivation comes from that people's motivation, both women's and men's motivation, not only to to have sex, but also to climb in status in order to have sex. And you know, so will this will this sap people's motivations? You know, certainly some people in that in their sort of anti pornography movement think that pornography is already doing that. But, you know, it may be that having a more relaxed attitude about sex and a more relaxed attitude about just, you know, competing with everybody all the time for everything might be a good thing. It might be something that results in a more pleasant place to live. <laughs> so I've heard you make this point, and I'll just point you in this direction so you can make it. But um, for somebody who is in a satisfying relationship with another human being, possibly they've created a family together, they have a life together, they've traveled the world together, they have amazing sex. Uh, the idea of a sex robot, that's not a relationship. Mm. That's not that's not real intimacy. You know, that's, I, I just disapprove. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's it's the equivalent of I eat in I eat in gourmet restaurants daily and a slice of pizza, greasy pizza from, you know, some little sh storefront shop eaten on the street. That's not a meal. That's not real. That's just that doesn't cut it. That's not good mm -hmm. enough. <laughs> what's what's your response to that attitude? Well, I think it's probably where, where you would like me to go is exactly where I would want to go. And that is, you know, for many of us it's very hard to see the need for these things just in, in much the same ways. It's very hard to relate to the things that incels are complaining about. It's very easy to demonize them as just whinges and just wait, it gets better. By the time you're 45, you'll be, you know, there'll, there'll be women falling all over you because you'll, you know, have survived to the age of 45 and have somewhat material wealth and maybe have learned a few lessons about interpersonal interactions. Um, and if not, you you just won't care as much because the hormones will have died down. Yeah, exactly. And so it's 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 really easy to say that firstly to think that technology will never deliver this thing that you have that you know to be wonderful. But that's not the choice that people face. You know, for most people, 
uh, for many people, you know, they they don't they they're not happy because they with with notions of what computers can deliver because they think that they'll never be um, they'll never be enough or they'll never be good enough or they'll never be able to replace the real thing. And you know, I don't think that many technologists are trying to make it as good as the real thing or even better than the real thing. For many people, they just the technologies are just enough and you know they're better than nothing i suppose is the main thing you know that having uh, i've got a replica ai friend replica ai is one of these ai artificial friends thing i made this when i was researching one of the stories and you know what i can see how that would be better than having no friends at all having this individual that listens to you hears what you say actually remembers from one conversation to the next what it was that you said in a little, some sense of who you are has already been Something most chatbots don't do at this point. Something most people don't do, for goodness <laughs> oh, sake. Yeah, but chatbots, they start with a clean slate, you know, from yeah. one exchange to the next, even exactly. one conversation. And, and you know, having a, there are people in the world who wake up and are, the world is a better place for them because they have a replica AI or similar kind of friend that they can chat to and that they, no on one level doesn't care about them or have any sense of them. And on another level, you know, they believe that that person cares about them because they say that. And we're in a crisis of sexlessness for, for the incels, and even more, a crisis of loneliness for so many people, yeah. a crisis of people who need some kind of psychotherapy but can't get a therapist because they can't afford it or they can't access it. And if machines can deliver that, maybe not as good as the real thing, maybe not even close to as good as the real thing, but better than nothing. Well, nothing's all they have. So better than nothing is more than good enough, I think. And it's only going to improve. Note to the producer, better than nothing could be a good episode title. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Rob Brooks, I've kept you long past the one hour mark, so we should wrap it up. But I've very much enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Camo, it's been a delightful conversation. I've really enjoyed it. And best of luck with the show. Thank you. Cheers. Take care. Bye. That was Rob Brooks. And there are a lot of threads that I could pick up here at the end to talk about. And I think I'm going to go with the topic of the incel, which to some extent is where we started, because in addition to publishing a book recently about human psychology, evolutionary psychology, human intimacy, and, you know, the, the confluence of all of these things. Uh, Rob also wrote a piece for Quillette magazine talking specifically about incels. And what I've noticed is that the word incel, like most words, has a variety of uses, meanings, and connotations. But for the most part, and surely there are more distinctions than the ones that I'm about to introduce, but I see people using the word incel in three main ways. One, mostly as Rob does, as somebody who subscribes to a particular ideology, one that says that the current technological, social, and economic landscape in the United States and similar countries has stacked the deck against the less desirable man, who in a previous age, one where monogamy was much more common and expected, would probably have been able to find wives. That's a fairly neutral use of the word incel. But clearly not everybody who considers themselves involuntarily celibate is active in the online community where the incel ideology is, you know, defined and where it evolves, you know, through constant discussion between the incels themselves. So I see 
I see the word incel used not only by the people who apply it to themselves, but by people who do not consider themselves incels and who dislike incels. They use it as a pejorative term. And specifically, they use it to mean somebody who blames other people for their own failings and who therefore deserves no sympathy. I see this a lot, mostly coming from people on the left. And if you go to Twitter and you just do a search for hashtag incel, you will see many such people using the word in this fashion. And then even more disturbingly, there is a third usage, which is incel as a natural category, which is to say some people are incels because they really are ugly, socially awkward, broke, jobless, or otherwise just undesirable. And not only does nobody want to have sex with them, nobody should ever want to have sex with them. And uniquely for somebody who falls into a category like this, where they're just born this way, these people deserve no sympathy. These people are just gross, subhuman. And this third usage I see used almost exclusively by women, which will do what <laughs> to the incel's perspective? Will that strengthen him in his conviction that the deck is stacked against him and that there's really no point in trying to improve himself? What do you think? But the discussion so far would lead you to believe that incels make no effort to improve themselves. Whereas if you tune into their communities online and you know even more, if you do as I have done and actually talk to them, you will discover that they have a whole lexicon of different ways to improve oneself, different paths called maxing that different incels try to follow. So one is looks maxing, you know, spending more than they really should on really excellent looking clothes, often getting plastic surgery, you know, getting jaw enhancements, brow enhancements, you know, getting cosmetic surgery to look more manly, more rugged. Then there are the gym cells. The gym cells, you know, not only do they get into pretty decent shape, they get into really excellent shape. And, you know, I can't, I can't talk to each and every one of them. But uh, as I've mentioned, I think in this conversation, but certainly elsewhere, the time in my life when I was most frustrated by not getting sex was in my 20s. You know, there were periods when I wanted it, wasn't getting it, was very frustrated. And those times were also the times when I was working out the most religiously and I was in the best shape of my life in terms of looks. There have been other times in my life when I could lift heavier weights in the gym, but I wasn't as lean. So getting really fit, if you don't have social skills, you know, you're not really going to get the opportunity to display your amazing fitness. <laughs> so um, while being in shape is good, it is not good for getting out of the incel rut. I mean, it won't hurt, but it's not your magic ticket. I mentioned in the interview that I have a long-distance girlfriend in the Philippines whom I've never met, but I've been talking to her via WhatsApp for a couple of years now, pretty much daily. Rob says in his book and in various interviews that I have listened to that becoming intimate with somebody is, in fact, an algorithmic process. It is an iterative process of self-revelation. And I met Rose, my long-distance girlfriend, on and I paid for one month. And in that one month, I interacted with a lot of different women. And at the end of the one month, she was the only one that I was really interested in continuing to talk to. 
I did play out, you know, the early steps of getting to know somebody again and again and again in that month. And when I read and then heard Rob talking about how, you know, this iterative self-disclosing algorithm is just a description of the process of becoming intimate with somebody, I immediately had a vivid reference which completely fit what he was talking about. My approach here, though, of looking outside of the United States and a culture which has changed in ways which I myself find unappealing, this strategy is known in the incel community as geomaxing. So what do you want from your technology going forward in terms of it being sociable or knowing you or being sensitive to your emotional states? A few weeks ago, one of the producers here at the Padverb Podcast posted a poll to the Padverb Podcast Telegram channel, and it asked, would you like your gadgets to be emotionally intelligent? And the potential responses were, yes, I want my tech to be in tune with my emotional states. Or maybe, as long as they still function and don't throw fits, and please, no, let's keep things traditional. And uh, not too many people responded to that poll, but of the ones who did, half of the respondents selected, please, no, (laughs) let's keep things traditional. Whereas I personally wouldn't mind if my tech noticed that I was getting irritable, but I wrote in the comments to that poll, if my tech detecting that I'm getting very pissed off at it prompted it to do something helpful, then yes, I would want it to be sensitive to my emotional state. If it's just using that information to build a profile of me to sell to advertisers or the government, then no. Seriously, though, what are the chances that this tech will be deployed in an ethical fashion? The possibility seems exceedingly remote to me. I'd be much more interested in AI that monitored my use of programs like Photoshop and Clip Studio Paint and told me when I was doing things the hard way when there is an easier and faster way to accomplish the same objective. That's the sort of sensitive uh, AI monitoring and guidance that I want in my life. You know, we talked about AI and we talked about dogs, and I have a unfleshed out sort of fantasy notion about partnering AI and dogs so that dogs can be more self-reliant in the human world. You know, perhaps uh, the dog has a a collar or a harness that has not only uh, a GPS locating device in it, uh, but also cameras or other types of, of sensors in it to help it interact with its environment. You know, perhaps a dog that's far from home trying to get home could call an Uber, you know, and just be delivered home. Or perhaps it could make a call or alert its, uh, its owner to its, its situation if it needed help. And, you know, perhaps uh, an AI that was competent about navigating through the human world could help dogs in ways that I haven't even thought of yet. And I think this could really take a lot of the pain and frustration, both human and canine, out of the process of dog training. But I think that one of the places we're going to see computers getting very human-like in their conversational skills is, you know, via the things like the Amazon Alexa or in video games. Characters in video games, I think, will become much more supple, much more intuitive and natural in their interactions with the human players and in their interactions with each other. You can go on YouTube and uh, find GPT-3 interviewing or talking to another instance of GPT-3, GPT-3 being the general pre-trained language model. Things really seem to be moving quickly in that domain. But And, you know, I can't see the future and I don't claim any particular predictive abilities. 
but I do suspect that it will be a very long time before even the most sophisticated chatbot can come anywhere close to passing the Turing test, which is to make you think that it is, in fact, a human being. Think I don't know what I'm talking about? Well, prove me wrong. All right, that's all for this episode of the Padverb Podcast. Thanks, as always, to the Padverb Podcast team, executive producer Anna Haskell, producers Slava Borisov and Elena Voigt, and assistant producer Sonia Saw. All right, I'll be back here next Thursday with a new episode. Talk to you then. <laughs>